Hey everybody, this is Alana with the Dealing with Donor Conception podcast. And today I'm really excited. We have a special interview with Dr. Melissa Muscala. And Melissa, she's on now. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Alana. Great to be here. Oh, thank you so much for being here. Um, I, I'm so excited for the listeners to meet you. You are an assistant professor of philosophy at the Catholic University of America. Um, you graduated magna cum laude from Harvard, and you got your PhD in political philosophy from Princeton, and now you teach and you do research on natural law, biomedical ethics, and the moral and political status of the family. You wrote an incredible book, To Whom Do Children Belong? Parental Rights, Civic Education, and Ch Children's Autonomy. Um, and you just, you speak on these issues that are so pertinent to reproductive technologies. You, so parental rights, conscious rights, the family, and, and you're, I, I, I'm just so excited to have you on here because and we're just going to skim the surface, but your brain is like a gift to this generation. And, and I wish I could, well, I'm doing my part to try to introduce people to you. Um, but hopefully they can dig in deeper to your work because you've been published at the New York Times, USA Today, the Washington Post, the New York Daily News, and the Public Discourse, along with, I'm sure, many, many more, Journal of Medical Ethics, for example. So thanks for being on this call. Um, I want to dig in with, with our first question. And, you know, you, you went to Harvard, mm -hmm. and you said in one of your talks that that you saw these advertisements for for egg donors at Harvard. And I'm really curious as to like what first prompted you to be interested in reproductive technologies. And was that part of it, like seeing all those advertisements on campus? You know, I'm not actually sure what or when I, I kind of started getting interested in, in these topics. I think really as soon as I was aware of their existence, um, I've, I found them interesting and important because I understand how important family is, how important relationships with parents are, how important it is to know where you come from and who you are and how much of that is tied to knowing where you come from and, and how you came into being. So, so all it, there was just a kind of instinct uh, that this was important um, and that the rise of these technologies is really important for our society, um, for good or for ill. And, uh, but yeah, seeing those advertisements at Harvard, I think uh, in many ways it was, it was just kind of creepy because I really felt like I was in a way almost, you know, people were almost trying to manipulate me mm. with promise of a significant financial reward. I think at the time the advertisements were, offering something like $8,000 or, or so for an egg donation, um, maybe more depending on if you met all the qualifications, but, but really it just felt like they were, they were kind of asking me to sell a deep intimate part of myself and cloaking it under the guise of altruism and helping other people have a family and of course, not telling you anything about health risks to you or what's going to happen to your child 
who one day wants to know who her mother is, what's going to happen to you when one day you come to realize, well, wait a minute, that egg that I donated, you know, ended up helping other people have a child, but it was my child that they had, right? And now I have this child out there and I don't know what's going on. I mean, all those things that, you know, um, I know you've experienced in various ways and, and, and people often don't realize the impact that it's going to have until many years down the road. Um, so largely I just, I just felt like those ads, I mean, they made me mad really that, that they were manipulating, um, young women, you know, exploiting them and, and also the sense in which there was a kind of eugenic aspect to this, right? That it's not a, a surprise, um, or an accident that these were ads in the Harvard newspaper where they're, they're going for, you know, quote unquote, elite donors. Right. And, you know, and honestly, I, I probably wouldn't have qualified even if I had been interested, right? I'm not, I'm not tall or blonde and, you know, I wasn't on a varsity athletic team, so I might not have made the cut. Right? <laughs> but, but, but again, you know, those it's, it's part of also this sense of it, it cheapens the person because it's, it reduces you to a list of traits that are, you know, deemed desirable and that people want for their future children. Um, I mean, it just gets into things that we'll talk about later, I think, of, of how this whole process tends to kind of treat people as if they were products, you know, things that you can kind of buy and sell uh, or things that you can, you know, make to order to your specifications in order to meet your desires, um, which is just so fundamentally opposed to the deep dignity that each person has just because of, of who they are. Um, so, yeah. so yeah, I mean that it, in yeah. brief, right. There's a lot, a lot of stuff going on surrounding those ads, but Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. You, you write really clearly and speak really clearly. You talk about the logic of, of manufacturing a process and the logic of the market. And, and, you know, I was, I was one of those blonde haired, blue eyed children. And that's why my particular father was chosen because he had blonde hair and blue eyes. And so it's kind of a hard feeling to describe to people, but I, I simultaneously felt like I'm valuable, but yet worthless. You know, like I'm good enough to keep around, but for reasons that are so petty that I could also be destroyed mm -hmm. at a whim. And so my life is like at the disposal of others according to their standards. And so I'd love for you to talk more about this idea, like the logic of manufacturing, the logic of the market principles. If you don't sure. Know. I mean, so, you know, when you think about it, how does the market work and what's it all about? Well, it's about satisfying the consumer, the paying customer, um, by giving the customer what they want. And the product is for the customer, right? It's made uh, to please the customer, to get the customer to come back, to buy more. And, and it's also about, uh, about profit in the end. And, and you see these things both directly and indirectly in the way that um, reproductive technologies work. I mean, uh, first of all, especially in this country, I mean, it's just a totally unregulated market driven uh, multi-billion dollar industry. Mm -hmm. And, 
and so clearly the the profit motive is is huge there when I've you know hear couples talking about their experience going into an IVF clinic and you know discussing the process and things like that and and you know I, I've heard it say that it, it felt almost like they were they were buying a car or something where they had the kind of first round of consultations that related to the medical side and the technical side of how things worked. But then they were kind of brought into a second office where it was all about the financing. Well, and so here are these packages that we can offer you. And, you know, here are the loans that we can give you. And, you know, and they, they, they really said it felt like the way it, the way things go when, when you try to buy a car, you know? Um, and, and that, that's weird, right? When you're talking about having a child. Um, yeah, and I've experienced this firsthand. Like I was years ago when I first started to, to when I was first starting the Anonymous S project and, and the Story Collective, there was a woman on on a forum somewhere where she she asked for a refund for her baby because it came out and it had some medical problems. So she right. asked she asked on the forum, "Can I get a refund for this?" Also, I had a, a friend donor conceived. She was born healthy, but later on, as an adult, she found out that she had a full blood biological brother con- conceived with sperm donation mm-hmm. who was given up for adoption because when he was born, he had down syndrome. So her brother was, you know, just, you know, given away right. because he wasn't what they ordered, but she was kept because she was healthy. So. Right. Right. And, and you see that even in less extreme cases where uh, just the way it typically works IVF will produce multiple embryos, right? If it's successful. Um, And usually then there's a selection process, right? You have to decide which of the embryos that are produced do you attempt to get pregnant with. And, And then the other leftover embryos, you know, those are either frozen perhaps for future use, probably most likely just to kind of languished there in cryo storage indefinitely and eventually die um, or they're you know donated to research or they're discarded maybe if they are deemed to be subpar for some reason and the selection of which embryos you know you choose to try to uh, implant that depends on a lot of things you know, just observation of which ones seem healthier, more robust. You could also do uh, testing, uh, pre-implantation genetic uh, diagnosis to look for certain traits that you want or to ensure that the embryo doesn't have diseases of a certain kind. You can do all sorts of things. And so there is this eugenic aspect of, you know, a selection being made of which embryos get a chance at life at developing, you know, more fully. And that depends on which ones are are considered to be better or stronger. And and that also is, is very much a kind of logic of the market, right? Where you, of course, if you're paying for a product and you want to get the best option available, right? Why would you choose the the product or even risk having the product be subpar when you could do everything possible to make sure that you get the best product that's available to you. Uh, but again, that's inimical to the, the way that we should be thinking about treating people, right? And, and also to 
that kind of deep need that all of us have for unconditional love, right? Especially to know that our parents love us unconditionally. And, and it's hard to have that sense of unconditional love if you know that in the way that you were conceived, you know, you were chosen and given a chance at life over some of your siblings uh, because you were perceived to be in some way better uh, to have traits that your siblings didn't have. And so then all of a sudden that makes the love that your parents have for you seem conditional, right? Conditional on having the traits that they desired. Um, so, so that's, that's deeply problematic as well. Um, and, and you also see this, this sense of, um, the child as a product, even just in, in the fact that it's, it comes together as the result of technical manipulation in a lab, you know, the egg and the sperm, uh, put together in a Petri dish and some versions of the, um, of the method, you know, literally one sperm is chosen and inserted, you know, physically into the egg um, to almost kind of force fertilization to, to happen. And, you know, and that's just, it's very different from a situation of natural conception where in the ideal case, of course, you know, there are lots of non-ideal cases, but, it, but in the ideal case, you would come to exist as uh, the result of a kind of loving act of of mutual self-giving on the part of, of your parents, right. Who are, who are literally making love to each other um, in a way that's open to, to having a child. And, um, and then you come to be out of that, right. It's a, a kind of act of love that's so powerful that after after nine months you might have to give it a name, right? That's that's a kind of beautiful origin story, right? Um, and and it just feels different to think, oh, well, a couple of lab technicians like put me together in a petri dish. Right. Um, yeah. Nobody complains when their parents were and like they were conceived out of love. Right. They get, it's not something to complain about. Right. It's beautiful. Right. Um. So, you know, and, and then there's, of course, you know, parents who are doing this, I don't, I'm not making any kind of negative judgment about the people who are suffering from infertility and, and, you know, I love uh, and, and, you know, they're, they're not, they're not thinking, oh, I want to harm my child or no, of course not. Right. They're, um, they, they don't have, you know, explicitly bad intentions, you know, they're often desperate and, and also sometimes kind of manipulated by the industry where they're, they're often not made aware of, of alternative options for dealing with fertility problems that are actually a lot more successful that get to the root of the problem um, that actually heal the causes of infertility, um, but that make much less money. Right. And so they're, they're, they're not the favored kind of standard medical option, which is to just recommend that people do IVF. Um, but that's, um, that's probably not, I mean, that's not even good medicine because it doesn't get to the root of the problem. It doesn't heal the infertility. It just bypasses it. Absolutely. And, and so when, when people are engaging in baby making activities, right? So that's what sex has always been. It's been a baby making right. activity. And now with reproductive technologies, that's also a baby making activity. So 
when you donate your sperm or you uh, donate your eggs or you engage in sex with someone, those are all baby making activities. And so what obligations do parents have to love their children? And so why, I mean, you write about like every parent has just an innate commitment to whatever child their actions spring forth. Um, and you talk about like non-transferable relationships. Can you share some like examples of that point and, and that message that you so eloquently talk on? Sure. I mean, so one way of thinking about the, the larger question here is, you know, why do we expect that we should be able to bring our own baby home from the hospital? Right. I mean, most people presume that if you get pregnant, you have a baby, um, go to the hospital, deliver the baby, that you're going to be able to bring not just any baby home, but your own baby home. And in, in tragic cases where, you know, there are mix-ups and things like that, you know, well, we call them tragic cases for a reason, right? Because people uh, expect and want to bring their own baby home. But, but why, why is that? Why does that matter? Why does it even matter that you're biologically connected to, to your parents? And, and so in my work, I try to kind of think through why, why those biological connections matter to us so much, because clearly they, they do. You know, people spend a lot of time often, you know, looking for lost relatives, you know, trying to figure out their, their family tree, their ancestry. Uh, why, why, why is this important? And, and I think the reason why this is important is that our identity is rooted in our bodily identity in our bodies, right? I mean, we're, I don't, I think there's, there's more to us than just our bodies, but our bodies are essential to us. They're, they're, you know, um, they are uh, an inherent aspect of our identity. If I had a, if I had a different biological makeup, well, I, I wouldn't be me, right? And, right. and, and thinking about the parents and children, right? If, if I had been conceived with different egg or different sperm, you know, from different, a different parent, well, I just wouldn't exist. It wouldn't be me, right? So if, if, if you think about what, like, most fundamentally makes me, me, and makes me continue to be me, over time, over the course of my life, even though lots of things about me change, you know, from the moment of my conception until now, obviously I've gotten a whole lot bigger. <laughs> lots of things have happened to me, you know, over the course of the years, I've changed my ideas about many things. I've changed where I live, how I look has changed. My commitments have changed. My values have changed. So what is it about me that makes me, me throughout all of that? And largely it's because I'm, I'm the same human organism i'm the same biological being right i i have the same body right fundamentally um and and that's because of the specific egg and sperm that um that joined to make me right to support that point i i remember my stepdad said to me once you know I, we we wish so bad that that your mom and I would have gotten together sooner so that, you know, you, you could have been mine naturally. And he was intending to be sweet. Yeah. But I was really hurt. I, I you know, I couldn't help but, but it's like, 
but then I'd be totally different. I'd be, mm -hmm. I wouldn't be me. And I you wouldn't be you. Right. Same. Like, can't you just love me as I am? But no, it was hard for him because I wasn't his and it, but it was a bittersweet kind of statement. And it just, I just, so yeah, in support of your, of your point. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, so that, so there's that, sometimes it can be hard to see, you know, who cares about biology? Why does it matter which egg or which sperm or whose egg or whose sperm, you know, right. were, you know, the, the cause of my existence, but, but it does matter because so much of our identity is rooted in that. Uh, we come to understand ourselves in large part by looking at our parents, looking at our family, looking at the traits that we inherited from them, the ways that we're like them, the ways that we're not like them. We, we learn a lot about that, about ourselves from that. And when, you know, for whatever reason, uh, somebody doesn't has, doesn't have that, there's a kind of missing link. Um, and, and so one thing is when that happens because of tragedy or reasons that are outside of our control, the trouble with um, donor conception is that it's not outside of our control, right? This is a chosen situation where a child is conceived in a way that is going to cut that child off from one biological parent and half of their biological ancestry. Right. And, and so that's, that's, that's so much harder to grapple with also because you know that it was done on purpose. Uh, it, was, it wasn't that a, a parent died or it wasn't a kind of accident that nobody foresaw. Right. It, it was, totally. it was chosen. That brings me to, you wrote one of your more recent articles is called Reproductive Technologies and Human Dignity, which you wrote in the public discourse. And can I just quote you real quick? You, sure. Um, there, one of your paragraphs, you say, are these scientific developments good or bad or a mix of both? Should we seek to craft public policies that promote and facilitate these practices or policies that discourage or perhaps even forbid some of them? And what is at stake if we get these questions wrong? And then you go on to say, what we are dealing with here are technologies that could literally alter the human race. Literally alter the, the human race. And so I want to ask you, like, in what ways is it harmful for individuals and for society if we start to use these technologies and ultimately, like, treat people as things, treat people as objects? And then what's, how should we treat people? Um, you know, some people that we don't know what it means to treat someone with for their full human dignity. Like we've been treated an object maybe our whole lives, and we've taught it's normal to just use people. So, so how do you define and then promote what is good? Like what are, what are we trying to offer instead here? Well, that's you know that really gets to the heart of. The question and you know one way of thinking about it uh, the kind of answer that that personalist philosophy gives to this question is that really the only adequate response to another person is love right that's that's what each of us deserves um, from other people right love and and I don't mean touchy feely sentimental sweet you know kind of uh, emotional stuff. What, what I mean is a commitment to the well-being of the other person. It's, it's that we actually care about the good 
of the other person. And so I think the, the kind of society that we want is a kind of society where we look at other people not as pawns to use for our own purposes, not as things or, or products that are there for our pleasure or are there to help us get ahead that are kind of, you know, steps on a ladder uh, for us to move forward and move past. But instead where we look at other people as having infinite value just because they're people and where other people look at us in that way also and, and treat us accordingly. Um, and, you know, that's, that's challenging, but I think fundamentally where we learn that ideally is in our families, because those are the sorts of relationships where it's easiest in a way to treat other people with that unconditional love that they deserve to be looking out for the good of others. You know, the family is meant to be a sort of safe space where you know that everybody has your back, that the others are looking out for you, that the others are willing to sacrifice for you. And, and when you have the security of being raised in a space like that, um, where you don't always have to be looking out for number one because other people are looking out for you and that frees you to be able to look out for others. Right. And that's this kind of beautiful virtuous cycle of uh, being able to, to focus on the good of others in ways that actually is, is so important for our own growth and development. I mean, the way that, that our personality grows and flourishes is when we contribute to others um, and to society as a whole, when, when, when we're kind of pushed back to kind of shrink in and think just about me and what I need and what I want and how I feel, um, that really kind of diminishes our personality. I mean, literally kind of shrivels it up, you know, um, but, but you, but we're, but we're pushed into that when we feel like, well, I have to look out for me because nobody else is going to look out for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's, it's having the experience of those relationships where others are looking out for us and being rooted in that, um, in our families that really makes possible that kind of outward looking giving approach to life which even, you know, if you look at the positive psychology movement, you look at all sorts of empirical research and you look at, well, what, what is it that makes people happy? Well, it's this kind of generosity and giving and feeling that you have purpose um, because, because you're giving, because you're making a, a contribution. And, and it's not that your worth or your value depends on what you do for other people. No, but it's, it's because you're secure in your own sense of intrinsic value and worth that you're kind of freed then to be able to give. Um, and, and, and so the, you know, the issue with reproductive technologies is that in some way it undermines this at the very core by changing the dynamic of family. And, and so the, the danger 
with reproductive technologies is because of this kind of logic of manufacture and production that we talked about earlier. It's a situation where it, it endangers that, that unconditional love um, in the family that, that we need um, to get uh, and, and, and kind of replaces it with a situation where instead of parents, in a sense, being for their children, right? Where what the, the ones who should really come first in the family in a certain sense are the children, right? The parents should be for the children and not the children for the parents. But with reproductive technologies, we flip it around where all of a sudden the children are for the parents, right? It's a project that the parents have that they want to fulfill. And if they're not able to do that naturally, then they use whatever technical means are available to fulfill their own desires. But then, but then a child comes to be seen as a means to fulfill the needs of adults instead of the other way around where adults are there to meet the needs of children, which is really the way um, that it ought to be. Um, You're reminding me of, you know, the Indian couple in their early seventies, who's not, they broke the world record for oldest parents. So they used IVF and egg donation to a 72 year old woman just gave birth to a child. And it was all because they always wanted one. And, but then just, I think a week later, she had a heart attack, you know, so there, there goes that baby's parents. (laughs) It's, um, and also the, you know, with dating, dating, should be and used to be kind of the filter to to test if someone was capable of love. So you, right. you, a child, for the most part, you know, there's always there's rape and things like that. But but there was this process of learning how to love another, and once you were capable of that, then usually you could make a relationship work, and then a, a new child would be conceived. But now you have people who specifically like. That didn't um, succeed at dating, you know, who were never ever interested in loving someone of the opposite sex, just, um, just, and they can just go to the fertility clinics, deliver their down payment, and there's no filtering process on the part of the fertility clinics. Like, they don't check and see if the person's decent, capable of love. They don't even check and do a home study to see if they're basically clean and sanitary living conditions. So I think dating used to be that, that filter that more or less helped ensure children had a decent upbringing. I mean, life's never been perfect, but I don't know. That's just a, a, a thought I had. I don't know if right. I'm going to expand on it. But. Right. Well, I mean, I, th- I think just building on what you said about the, the clinics not vetting potential parents at all, I mean, there's also a, a way in which separating the conception of children from, you know, the context of kind of loving, committed uh, relationships means that, you know, a lot of really terrible things can happen. Even literal baby selling, okay. you know, I, I know of one one case where a kind of agency was uh, pretending to have, you know, intended parents who were looking for egg donors and, and surrogates. And so then the agency would kind of bring in, uh, bring in egg donors and, and sperm donors, uh, create embryos, have uh, surrogates 
be the gestational carriers for those embryos. And then after birth, um, sell them literally, you know, put them up for adoption and, and sell them. Right. And, and make a huge amount of money because of course there are lots of couples out there who would like to adopt infants. So they, they were literally creating babies to be able to sell them to the highest bidder. Right. And, And that's, I mean, that's obviously an extreme example, but but, but reproductive technologies leaves children vulnerable to that kind of of exploitation. Yes, and the you know the pedophile market highly concerns me. I think anybody needs to everybody needs to be aware of that. There are monsters out there who are using reproductive technologies to gain access to children. And there's no vetting process on these situations whatsoever. Um, yes, that in, that's very in, scary. In, yes, yeah. Um. I want to talk about your book a little bit. So uh, your book is titled To Whom Do Children Belong? And you've had a lot of articles with that same title. And so obviously you think this question is very important. Can you tell us why, um, like what your book is about and and why we should read it and why this question is so important right now? Well, it goes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier in terms of relationships and and the importance of the biological tie between parents and children. And so when I talk about, you know, to whom do children belong, uh, obviously children are not, are not property. So we're not talking about belonging in that way. Uh, When I talk about, you know, to whom do children belong, really it's a question of responsibility, right? Children are extremely vulnerable. They're needy at the earliest years of life they're totally helpless totally dependent and so then the question is uh you know who has responsibility to raise those children to meet their basic needs uh to help them develop their full potential uh until they become mature adults and and i kind of trace the answer to that question by looking at the way in which um the the best scenario for meeting the developmental needs of children is a scenario in which they can be raised by their own biological parents in a kind of stable relationship right and so you know ideally where where kids are conceived in and raised by uh, their own married biological parents because that's the the situation in which they're going to be able to receive the stable, secure love of the two people who made them who they are, right? Who are their, their kind of links to, um, to the human race and, and to their, to their identity, because that, that link is, it's a permanent thing. And, and, and because of that, when, one or more of those biological parents is is absent there's a loss there um even even if there are other people who are wonderful parents you know which can happen in in cases of adoption or lots of things where tragedies occur or um you know people may end up um getting pregnant when they're not ready for it and they realize well the, the best way to love my child in this situation is to allow them to be raised by you know, a loving couple um, that can give them a better life than I can. Um, 
but but in a situation like that there's still there's still a loss because there's that link with your origins has been has been severed right the the people who who made you and who are responsible for your identity um they're they're not replaceable right it's it's not like the love of of one person is replaceable with the love of another one you know if if a husband invites his wife out to a romantic dinner it has to be he has to be the one to show up right he he can't just say you know oh you know sorry honey uh work uh it's a little bit difficult today i need to stay late but you know what i'm going to send my colleague um he'll take you out to dinner right well, no, that doesn't work right these right. the it's 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 not a replaceable thing you need that particular person um or you know even think about just day-to-day things you know you have uh a big birthday or something going on in your life and you know maybe lots of people wish you a happy birthday or congratulate you but you know your best friend forgets or your parents forget and don't wish you a happy birthday well that hurts even if other people were there to love you appropriately in that moment you miss the specific love and affection that you have you know reason to expect from those who are close to you like your friends and and your parents and so i think it's kind of similar with with children who are kind of missing a relationship with uh one or both of their biological parents is of of course they can be other people can be wonderful parents and love them very well and and of course you know um you're going to love you know the parents who who raised you but um but that doesn't mean you don't miss the love of those absent biological parents um because you do have that real link to them and so uh you know it's when when you can understand that oh okay well even though my biological parents didn't raise me the reason why they didn't raise me is because they wanted to give me a better life and they really couldn't give me a good life you know given their situation mm-hmm. um you know that's one kind of story and that and and then you can see all right well it's not because they didn't love me or didn't care about me that they're not raising me but you know it's it's much more uh wounding when there's a situation where you, where you can't give that kind of story and unfortunately that that is the story with with donor conception you can't say oh well it was an accident oh there was a tragedy um my biological parents would have loved to raise me they cared about me but you know they just couldn't and they wanted to give me the best life that they could well that that's just not the the real story with donor conception the real story is that you know there was bus is more important yeah well you know there was an agreement a contract and and you know the the person uh you know giving or really selling right the the sperm or the eggs um was you know signing away any any concern about me right they were doing it on condition that they wouldn't that they wouldn't have to care about the baby that that resulted from this right. um and so that's that's a lot harder you know to think gosh i have a biological mom or dad out there do they even know that i exist do they even care that i exist um because it matters to me and uh and and so that that hurts right that's really hard that, yeah that's it i know i know firsthand and i you know we're coming up i on our on our the end of our talk but i it is christmas around the corner 
and you happen to be Catholic. You teach at a Catholic school. And I just, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, because Christmas is like the birth of Jesus and really important holiday, right? People, lots of people <laughs> celebrate Christmas and it's all about the birth story of, you know, of Jesus, of this person that Christians worship. And can you, can we have a, just a brief conversation about like the, the importance of the beginning and have you reflected on that at all and, and contrasted his birth story to reproductive technologies and the differences? Yeah, I mean, the, the birth of Jesus, obviously, it's so special. It, it, it resonates with so many people. The idea of, you know, God, who is understood to be, you know, all-powerful, all-knowing, you know, it could have entered the world in any way that he wanted to, presumably, right? But, but chose to do so, they chose to do so at all, right? And then they chose to do so as a completely vulnerable, defenseless little child um, in, you know, very difficult material circumstances that really touches us, right? That, and it's, I think it's meant to send the message to us that, you know, each of us human beings is so precious in the eyes of God um, that God was willing to do that um, to show, right, his love and his, his care for us. Um, and, and that God also was kind of willing to enter the world within a human family and be dependent on, you know, human parents, uh, the way that all, all of us are, Right. That that's also a kind of model for, um, you know, the importance of of the family for all of us and, you know, enables us to kind of, you know, identify with or, or know or, or feel that, OK, God is not some distant being, but he can identify with us and our our weakness and our vulnerabilities because um, he experienced all of that, right. As a, as a human being. Um, but, you know, I also think just, you know, one last thought that kind of goes back to this question of, you know, the need for unconditional love that, that we all have. I think one of the things that touches us so much about the Christmas story is, is this idea that, um, you know, when God, you know, comes into the world as a baby, it's, it's not about, it's not about God, right? There's, uh, the powerful thing that, um, I've once heard say is, you know, that in a way the the most important element of the Christian story is the idea that God doesn't need us. And why is that important? Well, it's important because what it means is that whatever God does with respect to us is not for his sake, it's for our sake. Uh, and so there's a pure giving, a pure loving, that's going on there. Um, and, and it's meant to show us our infinite value. Cause I think one of the wounds that we all have, uh, because just of human nature, the difficulties of human life, the imperfection of all of our human families, or, you know, regardless of, of how they're constituted is, you know, we're n- no other human can really love us perfectly. 
you know, the way that we need to be loved. You know, some do it better than others, but, but ultimately, right. It's always going to fall short. And, and, you know, it can, it can be helpful to think, okay, but there is somebody out there who's responsible for our existence ultimately. Right. And that's, and that's God. And, um, and his love for us um, can be perfect because it's not out of any need of his um, that he wants us to exist. It's purely out of love. Um, and, and so that can be a beautiful and, and healing thing right. for all of us to remember. That, that is one, one thing in doing this podcast, you know, I think a lot of donor conceived people like myself have these existential dilemmas where, you know, we disagree with the way in which we were conceived. And yet, and oftentimes we're met with a, a response, well, wouldn't, would you rather not exist, you know? And it's, you're put in this really awkward position where you're, you're at odds with your own existence because, because you disagree with the way you were, you know, your birth story, your conception story. Now you have to question, well, should I be alive? And for me, it's been really healing to, 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 to take a position of, you know, I was given these cards. Well, they mean something. So you're supposed to learn something from these particular problems and questions that were handed to you. And so now how do you make the world a better place given the poetry that what you is your life? So um, if there's donor can see people listening to this, I, you know, we are supposed to exist for a reason, but you know, you don't have to agree with everything that's happened to you in your life, including the birth story and the conception story. And so thanks for talking about that for just a second. Um, I, I think that we should wrap up. Is there any last thing that you want to say or any article or book or talk that you want to promote that's coming up? Um, I, I think we've, we've talked about a lot of things and um, yeah, I think, you know, just thanks for the opportunity to talk about all these things that are, that are really important. And um, you know, and I hope that I've been able to say some things that are helpful for people, you know, who are dealing with this personally or, or who know people or who are just interested um, you know, I, I think it's important to kind of grapple with all of this, honestly, you know, both on an individual level and, and for what it means for all of us, you know, as a society. I, I, you know, you're just a wealth. We're just skimming the surface as far as I'm concerned, as far as this conversation, you know, we can only be together for 45 minutes, but I really, really recommend listeners check out Melissa Muscala, Dr. Melissa Muscala and your book, To Whom Do Children Belong?, and I just, I know that your career is going to be such a gift in this realm. So I'm, I, I hope you can come back again, you know, for another talk, another day. But thank you, Melissa, so much for. Um, thank you. It was my pleasure. And thanks for all the good work that you're doing, too. Oh, of course. Absolutely. So thank you guys for listening. This is um, another episode of Dealing with Donor Conception. There will be uh, another episode next Thursday and ongoing from there. So stay tuned. Uh, Thank you for listening to Dr. Melissa Muscala.